0: The practical implication of that imminent return of our Lord Jesus. In verses 12 through 15, he gave instructions related to how the Thessalonian believers should relate to one another in the church. This afternoon, we see him discussing how they should relate to the Lord. And the attitudes they should maintain, the kind of relationship they should sustain to the Lord. The first area that Paul discusses, which relates to the matter of their relationship with the Lord. or relationship with the Lord as Christians is found in verse 16, and the instruction is rejoice always, rejoice always. Of all people, believers in the Lord Jesus have more than enough reasons to rejoice in the Lord. The Christian should not be one who is known for a sour pessimistic outlook on life the fact is such attitude is dishonoring is displeasing to the god who himself is a god of joy we know that from psalm 16 verse 11 which tells us in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore." god is himself not only a god of joy but he has called his people to a life of joy. He causes people to rejoice. As Christians, our should be the attitude then of rejoicing if for no other reason than the fact that we are the unworthy recipients of God's saving, redeeming grace. We should rejoice being mindful of the fact that he has filled us with many a rich and wonderful blessings. When we look, for example, at Psalm 103, we see the psalmist there enumerating myriads of blessings that the Lord has showered upon us. He is to be praised. We should rejoice in him because he is the God who forgives our sins, who heals all our diseases, and so on and so forth. Now, this text we're considering says that we are to rejoice always. The verb is in the imperative mood, which indicates that a command is issued, it is a command to be obeyed. The verb is in the active voice, which implies personal active responsibility on our part to rejoice as we have been commanded. The implication, of course, being it's not left to us to decide whether or not we will rejoice. Uh, The call for us to rejoice does not have to do with our temperament. It has nothing to do with our personalities. We cannot, therefore, say that this command is not for me. And we can't say I'm not wired that way. The fact is, ours is a responsibility to rejoice because God has commanded it. He says here, rejoice always. Furthermore, the verb rejoice is in the present continuous tense. And what that means, the implication of that is that we are called to this activity continually. So that the Word of God is in effect calling us to make this matter of rejoicing a matter of habit, a regular way of life. The Christian is never to get to the point where he or she is not rejoicing. What that means is that even amidst the most distressing circumstances of life amidst the most intense, we could say, suffering, bitterness, disappointments, the Christian is to rejoice. The Word of God paints this picture that Christian joy is not at odds with suffering. For example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, 5 and 6, Peter is enumerating the fact, the blessing that the believer has in Christ. And among the blessings, he says this, we are kept by the power of God, through faith, unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then here's what Peter says. He says, in this, that is, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice. You are rejoicing, he says, even though now for a little season you are in heaviness, you are in grief because of your various trials. You have been grieved by various trials. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, which we considered several weeks ago, through him, Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. What all of this says to us then is that Christian joy, the joy that God commands his people to engage in this rejoicing on the part of God's people is not, it is not a natural human phenomenon. It is not something that stems from our natural disposition or our natural inclination. In this regard, Christian joy, we could say, is to be differentiated from happiness, which is passing, which is circumstantial. The very word happiness. If you look at it, the word happiness is related to what happens. If are not going good, if things are not going well for us, we tend not to be happy. And yet the Word of God says we are to rejoice always even, even amid sorrow, even amid distresses. In other words, the Christian's ability and disposition to rejoice stems from the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And lives. It is a supernatural endowment, this matter of rejoicing in the Lord, this matter of rejoicing as God has commanded us. It is a supernatural endowment. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit whereby he disposes us to have an attitude of joy, of rejoicing. Now, the Christian's ability and disposition to rejoice always is not in a vacuum. It stems, rather, from the assurance, from the conviction that Christ, our Lord, that God is ever-present with us, is ever-powerful for us, and hence is always in perfect control of everything that befalls us. And so, underscoring this very idea that Christian joy is dependent on God's power— on God's presence, and on the understanding, the conviction that God is perfectly in control of our circumstances, we hear the words of our Lord Jesus to his disciples in John 16 and verse 33. His disciples were troubled at this time, and here are the words of our Lord Jesus to his disciples. He says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart I have overcome the world. Here it is, Jesus is assuring his disciples that he is in perfect control of all that befalls them because he, by his power, has overcome, whereby they are able to rejoice in him. Christian joy, then, is dependent on the presence of God, it is dependent on the power of God, and it is dependent on the idea, the understanding, that God is in perfect control of all that befalls us. Hence, the Apostle James writes in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says this, Count it all, joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness he says here the reason you can do that is because of what you know and who is working in the situation to bring about the the cultivation of steadfastness of endurance it is God who is orchestrating who is putting together everything that relates to our circumstances so first of all then we are commanded in terms of our relationship to the Lord we are to be ever rejoicing we are to rejoice always. Now, in passing, let me say this. As we said earlier, it's not the most natural thing. It is easier said than done. It is something, however, that we must do, and we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the power of God through the Holy Spirit which enables us to be joyful to rejoice the fruit of the spirit is joy one of the elements of the fruit of the spirit is joy according to galatians chapter 5 verse 22 the fruit of the spirit is joy love joy peace secondly in terms of our relationship to the lord and particularly in these days as we await the coming of our lord jesus not only is it that we should be rejoicing always but we should pray always look at verse 17 pray always And this command calls attention to the fact that one might pray, one might pray, and yet not have a prayer life. That prayer is not a seasonal exercise, but a continual engagement with the Lord. And on this matter of praying always, one writer comments as follows. He says this, quote, this is the altar, speaking of this activity of praying always, he says, this is the altar of incense ever burning in the holy place. This is the fragrance of a heart that lives in the presence of the Holy One and breathes the very life of God. This is the deep undertone of a sanctified life, End quote. And we see throughout Scripture the call time and again for God's people to be ever engaged in prayer. God's people are to pray Always, in Matthew 26, verse 41, Jesus solemnly urged his disciples as they were at Gethsemane. He says this, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He told them a parable in Luke chapter 18, and he says a prayer to the effect that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Humanly speaking, sometimes, if not for the grace of God, we're inclined to ask the question, well, what really is the function of prayer? I've been praying, 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 nothing seems to be happening. And it seems that I'm going through the motions. It seems that my prayers are really going no further than the ceiling. They are bouncing off the ceiling. They are coming back to me. Prayer seems to be a wasted exercise, especially if we have been praying, say, for the salvation of a loved one for years. Nothing seems to be happening. The question is, why pray? Jesus says we should pray and not lose heart. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And that word steadfastly carries the idea that we are to work at it, we are to keep at it, even when there's a pressure to call it, quits to throw in the towel. Well, the question is, why is it necessary that as Christians, you and I should pray always? Why should we pray continually? And we could answer like this because praying continually is the means by which we stay in close fellowship with God maintaining fellowship with him. It's the way in which we stay in touch with him, praying continually. Also, is the means by which we combat the forces of evil, overcoming the attacks, the allure of the evil one and his cohorts. We are told in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And that part of the way we are to do that, Paul actually tells us in Later on, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To this end, Paul says, we're to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. Now, here's what it does not mean. Somebody says, well, do you mean when the Scripture says pray always, does it mean, for example, I'm always, if you do this, closing my eyes... Does it mean that my prayer has to be structured, and does it mean that even while I'm driving, I'm praying this long prayer, does it mean that I am just going at it nonstop? Well, certainly it doesn't mean closing our eyes. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be praying long prayers. It doesn't mean that we're going to be praying in ways which are not really conducive to say, driving, working. But positively speaking, to pray always means this. It means that we are ever in an attitude of dependence on God. We are ever in an attitude of dependence of the Lord, turning to Him, conversing with Him, even with regard to the most mundane matter. It means that when even with things that are seemingly insignificant, somebody would say, well, why bring this to the Lord? And here's the point, to pray always means this, everything we bring to him, everything we talk to him about, and that's very interesting, such prayers need not be lengthy, such prayers need not be structured, such praying may be short, such prayer may be spontaneous, it may even consist of a sentence or two. The most important thing is that we are ever mindful of the Lord, turning our hearts to him, turning our thoughts to him. Who best illustrates that in scripture? This matter of short, spontaneous prayer. He was always praying, ever praying. Who was that? Nehemiah. Nehemiah is at his job. He's talking to the king and read the book of Nehemiah. Even as he's talking to the king, he turns to the Lord and asks. He says, Lord, remember me. Help me. (laughs) He does that a few times throughout the book while he's conversing Even there was a time when Nehemiah became angry because he saw how the people were walking contrary to God. They were breaking the Sabbath and he even threatened them. He says, listen, if you do that again, if you pass by here again, I'm going to handle you. And in the same breath, he's doing what? He's turning to the Lord. He says, I consulted with myself and then I answered Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we had that continual sense of awareness of God's presence, where we are ever talking to him, even about the smallest thing, even about the seemingly most insignificant thing, the most mundane thing? Nothing is off limits when it comes to talking to the Lord, when it comes to conversing with the Lord So we are to be praying always in terms of our relationship to the Lord, in terms of how we relate to the Lord, especially in these days as we await his coming. We are to be a praying people. We are to be praying always. We are to be rejoicing always. But thirdly, the Word of God calls us to give thanks. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why Paul? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Translation, give thanks even when circumstances, humanly speaking, is not conducive to giving thanks. Even when it seems counterintuitive, even when it doesn't make sense, we are to give thanks in every circumstances. And the reason we are to do that because God wants for us to do that. He says there, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, Paul is speaking in absolute terms. And it's to be taken literally because when he says in everything give thanks, he means just that. And if we stop to think of it, we should give thanks in all circumstances, we should give thanks for everything. Why? Because the point is every. Breath we take, every waking moment, every minute, every second, we stand in God's grace, enjoying the blessings of His goodness and His grace. We are to give thanks in everything. Who was it? Uh, was it Matthew Henry or somebody related to Matthew Henry? His he, his uh, money got stolen. And he said something to the effect, I don't remember exactly how it went, but the essence of it is this. He thanked God for, you know, he made the best of the circumstances. He thanked God for this, that, and the other. And it's very interesting when you read it. You said, well, we never really thought, you and I would never really think of doing that. He says, well, I thank God, first of all, that, that my life is spared. And then I thank God that it wasn't somebody else from which he stole. And on and on he's going. He's finding reasons and grounds for thanking God. And it makes sense, really, when you stop to think of it. Here's Ephesians 5.20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know our Lord Jesus set an example of what it means to give thanks in everything? There was a time in his ministry when he preached And the people were stubborn, the people were unrepentant, and read Matthew chapter 11. Toward the end of Matthew chapter 11, after these cities had rejected him, after they had been, after they had remained stubborn to his teaching, they were unrepentant. What did our Lord Jesus do? He turned to his father in prayer and he says, Father, I thank you that you have hid these things from the wise and have revealed them unto babes. Here's the point. Even amidst what we would call disappointment, we labor and we labor and we preach and we pray, and we're not satisfied with what we see as the results, and we think it should be that. No, here's our Lord Jesus, the greatest of all preachers. This was God, this was the perfect man, and he preached and People resisted, and yet in that moment, in fact, those are the very words of Scripture, in that moment, he prayed, thanking his father, that even in that situation, he saw the hand of God, that God judicially hid these things from them, from those unrepentant people. Listen, we may not necessarily be thankful for every situation in our lives. We might not be happy that they occur, I should say, It's the will of God for us, nevertheless, to give thanks. While in the midst of situations that we deem to be unpleasant, that we deem to be bitter, whatever the circumstances in our lives, giving thanks to the Lord is always in order. Why? Because God wills it. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. A life of continual thankfulness to God, regardless of the circumstances, indicates that one understands that one's life is under the Lord's sovereign control. Stop to think of that. The reason we would give thanks when the world would say, are you crazy? What are you talking about? How can you give thanks for that? It, is, it stems from the recognition that God is in perfect control. Very recently, a young man shared with me And he was mentioning some some up that occurred. And you know, he was able to say, listen, God did it. And he said, the reason God did it was because of this, that, and the other. And he thanked God for that situation. Some people would say, that's sick. But the Bible would say that's the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Paul had his back lacerated. He and Silas, they were beaten, they were humiliated, they were thrown in jail, their feet were placed in the stocks, and at midnight what they were doing, they were singing praises to God. They were doing the unnatural And then Paul, in verses 19 through 22, speaks, he moves from our relationship to the Lord, we should be praying always, rejoicing always, and he points now to the question as to what should be our attitude towards spiritual manifestations. Paul mentions at least four attitudes we are to have as regards spiritual manifestations. First of all, The believer is not to quench the Holy Spirit, verse 19. He says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. And this is one of several sins against the Holy Spirit that we find in Scripture. There are various sins against the Holy Spirit. First of all, there's a sin of lying to the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. You remember the incident with Ananas and Sapphira. They had property. They sold it. And they brought the proceeds, giving the impression to the apostles that they had brought everything evidently. They were impressed with what Barnabas did, his magnanimity, his generosity. So they decided they were going to play the hypocrite, give the impression that they sold their property, and they brought everything laying at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to them in turn, he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? There's a sin of lying to the Holy Spirit. Secondly, there's a sin of testing the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5 verse 9, But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? There's a sin in Acts chapter 7 verse 51 of resisting the Holy Spirit. And this is done by opposing the truth of God as it is being preached. When we hear the Word of God preached and when we close our ears, when we turn a deaf ear, when we are resistant to truth... We are, according to Acts chapter 7 verse 51, resisting the Holy Spirit. We sin against the Holy Spirit by grieving him. By grieving him. We grieve him, according to Ephesians chapter 4 verses 30-31, with such sins as bitterness, wrath, slander, and malice. If we are harboring bitterness and unresolved anger in our hearts, the Word of God teaches that we are grieving the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. He resides in our bodies. He is very much resident in our lives. And when we harbor feelings of ill will, when we harbor resentment and the Spirit of God Is grieved. And then one may sin against the Holy Spirit by outraging or insulting the person and work of Christ, his redeeming sacrificial work, treating it with contempt. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 29. The writer says, speaks there of doing insult, of insulting, of doing despite to the Spirit of grace. Now, with respect to quenching the Holy Spirit, the question is, how may we be guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit? And we may be guilty of quenching the Holy Spirit by ignoring him, by simply neglecting him. We may quench the Holy Spirit by disobeying his dictates, by not rendering him our full, instant obedience, or by slighting his convicting work in our lives. When we hear the Word of God, for example, and God puts his finger on some error of our lives that we need to address, and we say, no, 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 and through pride, we resist it. Through pride, we disobey God. We are quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, the imagery here is that of fire. And the Holy Spirit is pictured here under the emblem of fire. And what the Word of God is saying here is this, that sin quenches that fire. Sin, when we sin, it's like throwing water on fire. It's like stifling his influence in our lives. Are we quenching the Holy Spirit? We may quench the Holy Spirit by not rejoicing as God says we should. We may quench the Holy Spirit by not praying as we ought. If we lead prayerless lives, then we are quenching the Spirit of God. If we are ungrateful, if we are always complaining, we quench the Spirit of God. We're going to stop here for this afternoon, but I trust that with these words, we would be awakened to a responsibility as far as maintaining our relationship with the Lord. Question is asked, how do we do that? We do that through prayer. We do that through maintaining attitudes of joyfulness, faithfully representing Him who Himself is the God of joy knowing what it is to give thanks in all circumstances and keeping in step with his spirit, not resisting him, not quenching him, not grieving him. May God bless these truths to our hearts for his name's sake. Amen.